My name is Dave Hollenbach, the host of From Embers to Excellence, a podcast that explores the many facets of leadership from the perspectives of some amazing people. We discuss the triumphs and failures that have shaped our lives and our leadership philosophies. I've found that it isn't whether we fail that defines us, but when we do fail, how we respond. Leaders dust off the ashes and use their failures as fuel to work harder and as lessons to come back wiser and stronger, more resilient, more determined, and more committed to excellence. Today, I'm speaking with Corey Poirier. He is also known as that speaker guy. He is a multiple, uh, multiple-time TEDx speaker. He's the founder of Blue Talks. He is the co-author of the Wall Street Journal USA Today uh, bestseller, Quitless. He's been featured in and or seen on NBC, ABC, Fox, TEDx, Entrepreneur on Fire, Entrepreneur Magazine, Second City, The CW, and CBS. Uh, Corey is based out of Canada. It's Ontario, correct? Uh, close. Uh, I'm in Prince Edward Island, which is um, a little further east, but okay. uh, but yeah, not that far. Well, it's relative, I guess. Canada is a big country, but uh, <laughs> yeah, it's well, uh, far east. I want to dive right in and, and kind of get a sense of who you are and what led you on this path that you're on. Um, you and I met through a mutual, well, she's the editor of my book. Um, she suggested I get in touch with you so that, uh, you know, you're the, the TEDx guru and you've been helping me along the way so I can land my first TEDx talk. And um, I, I just, uh, it's incredible that for what you do, you're, you're so good at it, but you're so personable and extremely helpful. Like, uh, uh, and, I, and I'll put it this way, I was talking to one of my friends and it was like the first time you and I talked, it felt like we were buddies. So that's not something that too many people have. So, well, and, and I'll say the feeling is mutual, 100%. So thank you, David. I, uh, I'm humbled by that. And also the feeling's mutual. I, I would like to find out, um, well, where were you born and raised? And, and what was your family life like growing up? So I was born and raised, in fact, in the same place that I live now. I did the full circle move. I was away for 20 years and I'm mid 40. So, you know, mo most of my adult life, I've actually lived away from where I grew up. Uh, they say that, I don't know if this is true, but they say that you, most people end up dying only like 15 or 20 kilometers from where they grew up. And I don't know how true that is across the world, but I feel like I'm living that right now because I literally and I'm not making this stuff up. I literally lived less than a five minute drive from where I was born, like wow. that close. And uh, so I grew up in Prince Edward Island in Canada, tiniest little province. So it'd be, you know, just in the US, it'd be like the smallest state or the smallest province. And uh, it's a, an island surrounded by beaches. So it is, I took it for granted when I was growing up. Now I get it, but I didn't when I was growing up. So I was just like, I can't wait to leave this place. And, and I wanted to go to places like I, I, would, I wish I could just go to a place where I could sit on the beach whenever I want. And meanwhile, I left an island where I could sit on a beach wherever I want. But uh, growing up here, it was very, for lack of a better way, I would say uneventful. And um, when I say that, what I mean is it was, you know, it was a small town type thing. So uh, everybody sort of knew, knew your business. But at the same time, it, uh, you know, it didn't feel maybe as dangerous as some other places might be to grow up like uh at, this is crazy but because i still know some people that still do it but when we were growing up it was very 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 abnormal to have any of your doors locked like very abnormal for you every car doors locked your 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 home door locked and so on so that was you know so obviously it was a fairly safe i guess we'll say uh upbringing as far as that goes there were lots of local fights like kids fighting but it was fairly safe and um, so I grew up here in this little tiny place and moved away when I was 19, 18, like as soon as I pretty much could move, I moved away. 
and lived away for, like I say, roughly 20 years. And then my girlfriend, uh, she is actually from the same place as me, like same small town. We knew each other in school just to kind of say hi in the hallway, but didn't, never had spoken more than 10 words type thing in her whole life. And ironically, she moved away, I moved away, and we actually had to meet in the opposite side of the country, get together before moving all the way back, you know, now to where we both grew up. Like, and by the way, she's, excuse me, closer to where she was born than I am. And I told you I'm five minute car ride. So like, she's actually, and I, this is crazy to me when I think about it, but our road, like to go to our house from the top of the road to our house is like maybe a one minute drive. And if you come from our house down to the bottom of the road and turn right, where she lived was on that next road like so we're only one road over where she grew up and uh what happened was we both um ended up getting together in the western part of Canada and she um was living in this apartment uh, and she said you know should I stay living here and I kind of moved in with her into that apartment for a little while I still have my place back east and uh, she said what should I do do you think and I said I think it's up to you but you just gotta ask yourself where you'd be happiest and she said well I'm kind of wondering why I'm living in this little town where I know nobody whenever my father, your mother and all that stuff is back home in the, you know, a bigger town where we know people. And so we ultimately decided to load up her vehicle with her dog Sprocket, which is a little silky terrier, drove across 26 states and five provinces in 16 days and stopped everywhere along the way. Had a bunch of cool little lifetime adventures and moved back to where we were born, both of us. And we've been here since, and that's about going on seven years ago, I think. So that, I mean, that was kind of a, I guess a roundabout way of saying the life journey that I followed. Uh, and to answer the other part of your question about, you know, growing up here, I, I grew up, I was raised by a single mother. My mother is an only child, I'm an only child. And so very small family. We didn't have it easy financially for some of those years because when my father and mother split up, my mother was trying to do it all on one income. And, you know, we had times, David, where it was like, uh, what do we do for supper? And, and I remember she had to use collectible coins one night for supper. And when she bought me a winter jacket one time, it was like two weeks of overtime to afford the jacket that a high school or a, sorry, an elementary school friend stole. He had the exact same jacket, but his was older and beat up and ratty. And I remember I went to the hook and there was his jacket and I knew it was his. And I told my mom and I'll never forget this. She said, well, I know his upbringing and he has a harder time than we do. So we'll just find a way to buy you another jacket, you know, and she had just worked two weeks and all that stuff. Like, I don't even know if I would have been that compassionate at that time as a kid. I was like, no, we got to go get my jacket. And she was like, no, uh, uh, he has it harder than us. We'll figure it away. And so just to kind of give you a bit of uh, the upbringing side, that was, after my mother and father split up and then my mother did get together with a boyfriend who she was with for about 12 years. And at least uh, from a financial perspective, life got a little bit better. Like in other words, it wasn't like, so it was hand to mouth because they both were working and they both made a fairly decent income. Uh, and then basically from there, like I say, it was just a kind of a regular sort of upbringing. I mean, I got into trouble like a lot of kids, I guess, but you know, I was 14 and 15 and 16 and I ultimately grew out of it. But I don't know if that gives you a bit of a window, but that's kind of a bit about my upbringing. Only child, small town. Uh, uh, I'll add in, because uh, I was just talking to somebody about this earlier today, started smoking uh, cigarettes when I was like 12. Uh, almost burned the house down with a cigar one day because I thought that cigars, you just stamped them out and they went out. I didn't realize some of them could stay lit. And I left it on my bed burning and left. My mom came home to like smell of smoke and a hole in my bed that was pretty big and uh, ultimately said, you know, I'd rather you smoke in front of me than burn my house down. So I ultimately started this journey of smoking at 12 uh, and then quit at 20 and, uh, and having had a cigarette since. And so it's kind of funny because I was talking to somebody about this just today, because I think that was a big part of my upbringing as well, that my mother kind of felt like if she was smoking, it would be hypocritical to tell me not to. And especially if I was going to do it behind her back and worse would happen than if I just did it in front of her. And I really feel that's her allowing me to do that is also what allowed me to quit when a lot of my friends were just starting because their parents are saying, if you ever smoke, you'll be kicked out of our house. So then they started smoking and most of them are still smoking today. 
So it's kind of a weird, that's kind of outside of the, my upbringing, but it also gives you a little bit of a glimpse into my upbringing because my mother was really, uh, if I've done it, I'm not going to tell you not to do it type mother. So there you go, David. That's a, a bit of bit of a window. Nice. And now after high school and, and I guess when you moved away, what did you do uh, for work? Did you go to school? What was your early adulthood like? So uh the moving away part so i went to, i did go to school i went to college and like still in prince edward island where i grew up so i graduated high school uh i was just about to turn 18 like my just the way my birthday runs uh so i was able to basically by the time i was 19 ish uh i had already gone to uh college two years of college two separate colleges and so by the time when i moved away i, I hadn't i haven't gone to college since but i went to two colleges right after high school and then I went through an entrepreneurial program sponsored by the government so that was kind of my formal schooling after high school and I was one of those guys that like I barely graduated high school I got uh, 49 plus one in one of my classes uh, where I needed a plus one to graduate and the teacher gave me a plus one and I'll, I'll never forget that uh, it was actually in history uh, whether that's good or bad I don't know but I almost failed history and um and so I wasn't a top student, but then the interesting part is when I went to college, I was getting like, in, in our school system, it was percentages. So like 100%, obviously, is the best you can get. And then uh, let's say a 60%, below 60% was a fail. Uh, actually, below 50%, sorry, was a fail. Uh, and then uh, for me, I went from that C student, so like a 60, 70% student, to when I went to business college, it, I went to like a 95% all the way through. So there was a little, I guess, a little lesson there is when you actually love what you're doing, you excel at it, you do a lot better. And so I did go to college, uh, like I say, two separate colleges, one in business computers, it was called at the time. That's how archaic, that's how old I sound, because it was like, they didn't even really give us a name for the course. It was business computers. But really what it was, was it was a bookkeeping course that count, counted towards your credits towards a certified general accounting degree if you wanted to go that route. Uh, so I went for a year of college there, completed it. Then I went to another college in marketing and human resources, completed it. And then I went through that entrepreneurial program. And then I moved across the country uh, to re retire forever by working on the oil rigs was where my head was at. I thought, well, I'm going to work in the oil rigs and make enough money in eight months to never work again. Uh, I worked on the oil rigs for about eight minutes. Realistically, it was a week. And I got burned by hydrochloric acid. Uh, because one of the guys didn't tell the other push, the guy running it, that there was uh, acid underneath the cement we were basically breaking up. And so when I woke up the next morning, I had my face was all peeling and my eyes were all bloodshot. And basically it was, you know, I had acid essentially all over my head. And that was my last adventure working on the oil rigs. So I was there, I think literally seven or eight days. And I moved into the city, took a position with a Fortune 500 company in sales, and for lack of a better way of saying it, I haven't looked back since. So my career has been really a business career since kind of that moment, really. My first book. I'm not sure by how much, like how long. I, it feels like maybe three years uh, ahead of it. Uh, interestingly enough, I didn't read my first book until age 27, which surprises a lot of people. I went through high school and I did the, I, I think there's different names for it depending on where you are in the world, but we called it Cole's Notes, I think. Uh, but basically, it was like these little booklets you could buy that were like a summary of the book. So that's how I got through school, like in English and stuff, is that I basically uh, either watched the movie and did as best I could or read uh, Cliff Notes, I think they call it in certain places, and Cole's Notes, what have you. That's how I kind of got through. So there were three books that I came close to reading, like meaning I read like a half a chapter or a chapter that was close to me to reading was uh, like Kill a Mockingbird, Death of a Salesman and Lord of the Flies. And of course, they were all school recommended books. The only book I tried to read before that age on my own, before 27, was Cujo. Uh, and it didn't scare me. Um, the movie did, but the book didn't scare me, but I just, it didn't pull me in. And so at age 27, my mother bought a book called How to Win Friends and Influence People by Dale Carnegie. Uh, I started reading. It pulled me in because of his storytelling approach. Never let me go. And I read the book twice that weekend. So from a guy that never read a book. And I remember before I wrote the first book, and it wasn't long after I read that book that I wrote my first one. But I remember saying to my mom, I think I want to write a book. And she said, I think you have to read one first. And I'll never forget that. Like it was, it's kind of a, a good point. Uh, but yes, yeah, so, because you need to know, obviously, format and, and the approach to writing. 
Uh, so I ended up writing a chapter in a book called Share Your Message with the World. And that was the first thing I wrote in a book format. And then I started writing these books called Conversations With. And what made them unique, uh, Dave, is that they were, I was interviewing other thought leaders and writing their story for a newspaper that I had. And so most of the stories in the book became, were actually profiles from the newspaper. And then I would write a few new ones for the book if it was somebody I hadn't interviewed yet. And so it was really easy to do the first five books because it was, it was just single stories. It wasn't even chapters. It was single stories, almost like chicken soup for the soul, how they have like the single stories by people. And so my first five books were done like that. Uh, so it allowed me to really get into the book writing world really heavily without ever having to write a full book myself. So I think like I may have been seven books thin before I wrote the first book myself. How many books total do you have? If I include Blue Talks, which is, you know, that's a debate whether or not I should include those because I write the foreword, but, um, you know, and, and publish the book, but I'm not necessarily an author in the book. But if I include those, I think I'm at 17. If I don't include those, I'm around 12. Now, to work that backwards, uh, I'm in, let's see, five, no, sorry. One, two, three, four. I'm in about five total compilation books. So then, you know, to work that backwards, uh, I guess that means I'm in what? Seven books of my own, maybe eight books of my own. And then five of them are those books I told you about. So I have like three full books that I wrote that are, one's a parable. So it's a nonfiction book. One's my book called The Book of Why and How, uh, which is still my current book in my mind. It's one I brought to a publisher and I'm still working with that book. And then a book I wrote called The Book of Public Speaking, which I'm rewriting for the new year to be called Get Paid, Getting Paid to Speak. But those are my three, I'm trying to think if I'm missing one. I think those are my three full real books, like my full, that I wrote start to finish. All of those books can be found on your website or um, the, the Book of Why, or the Book of Why and How has its own website. And then I would imagine you could find it in any bookstore and online as well. Yeah, so uh, different answers depending on the books. And, you know, it's funny when I say that number, I still consider that I've authored eight because those conversations, one where I wrote the separate things, at the end of the day, it's still a full book and I still wrote everything in the book. So I guess I should give myself at least a little bit of credit on those books because it's not like anybody else wrote them for me. I mean, I wrote them everything from start, like front to the back. Um, but those, I bring, brought that up because those books, some of them are, they're in local bookstores and regional bookstores, but they were a very regional focused type book. They were called Conversations with Atlanta Canadians, Conversations with Islanders, Conversations with Nova Scotians. And those names like Islanders, Atlanta Canadians, those are all names from the region where I grew up. And so they're very localized they're, and regionalized. There's no real reason to have them, for example, across the country. So those books made their way to regionalized bookstores and online. Uh, some of them are still on Amazon. The other books, the ones, any of the books that I was a co-author of are on Amazon. Uh, and then different stores, depending on which one. For example, the Quitless book you mentioned is uh, carried by Simon & Schuster. So that book is, of course, in most bookstores. The Book of Why and How is carried by Morgan James, a New York publisher that I work with. And that book is basically in most stores. The Blue Talk, some of the books are at Walmart and, and Target and uh, Barnes and Noble. So some of them are in various bookstores. And then the real summary of all this is almost all of them are in some capacity on Amazon. So it really just depends on the book. And you did allude to, and it is correct, that the Book of Why has its own site. The Book of Why and How uh, sometimes I forget to add the end how, and I should because I should add it because there is another book called The Book of Why, and I always have to be conscious of that. Uh, but The Book of Why and How is actually at thebookofwhy.com. So it does have its own website. And so that leads me into your, your speaking career. How, how did you land your first TEDx talk? The first one was a, a little unique, and I don't even think I could replicate this in a lot of ways. Uh, everything I did up to when I got considered for it and landed it wasn't the unique part, but where it got unique is how it ended up happening in the bigger picture. And so to explain what I mean by that is as far as the talk itself, I um, reached out to them. I did a lot of what I even now would recommend somebody do. Like I did a lot of the, I got to know the organizers outside of applying and all that kind of stuff. But where it was unique is that when I did apply, I was late. 
So I was late in the game. And it was only because I only discovered the event late. So I was late in the game and I applied and it was too late. So they were like, okay, well, we've already selected the speakers. And so I thought, okay, well, that's a, you know, I gave it a good effort. And now I know them for the next time they do an event. Ironically, they never did another event that, that TEDx. So it's kind of good that I got in when I did, because I wouldn't have got in a future year because they didn't have a future year. But what happened was I applied. And like I said, they said, oh, you just missed the deadline. And we already have the speakers booked. And excuse me, I got to know the organizers anyway. I spent time getting to know them. And they really liked my talk. They were actually disappointed that it was so late that we connected. What happened was they reached out to me. I feel like it was maybe, it wasn't a lot of notice, like maybe a month before uh, before the event. And they said, Corey, are you still interested uh, in our event? And I said, yeah, why do you ask? And they said, well, one of the speakers had to duck out. And now because we had already selected all the speakers and we kind of said no to all the rest, it, we can take anybody we want now. Because so in other words, it wasn't like there was somebody on a waiting list that I was jumping ahead of. It was just, okay, we picked our 10, everybody else we're not going to go with. So now they could just, everybody was equal playing field. They didn't have a backup person. So they could go to me because they liked my talk. I probably built a stronger relationship maybe than some of the other speakers. But ultimately they said, if you want in, we'll give you the last spot. And you got a spot of somebody that just canceled. I, if I remember correctly, I think he was terrified of doing it and he actually tapped out. So, you know, I have to wonder to this day, would he regret that? Like, you know, did, did he, does he regret that he didn't do that talk? Uh, but having said that, yeah, that's how the first one came about. And everything was different about that than talk since, uh, even to the extent that they paid for my travel. I don't even know if they're allowed to do that then or now, but, the, and, and it doesn't really matter because they, they're defunct. So it's not like they can get in trouble for it, but they uh, paid uh, for my kilometers. Like they didn't pay for flight or anything, but I, it was only a um, two hour drive. And I didn't ask for that. They said, we pay for the, this, the kilometers and all that. And maybe they did it out of their own kitty. I'm not sure it was a university. I don't know how they structured it and I don't care anymore, but it was all different, Dave, in that sense. Another thing was they weren't uh, super organized to the extent that one person who was going to take over and never ended up putting together another event was actually the one that got handed all the videos. So even some people didn't ever, I don't think their videos ever seen the light of day. Like it was a really different structure and we're going back like five, six years. So it is earlier in the, and Ted's been around forever, but it's, it, you know, that's still five or six years ago. It's quite a while ago in their structure. I'm sure it's changed dramatically, even for the, anybody who runs an event in that city again. Uh, but yeah, so how I landed it was really, a, I think a mixture of synchronicity. I won't say luck, synchronicity. And the fact that I still put in the work, I still did the things to get myself on their radar to put together a talk that they felt would fit with the rest of the talks. Uh, I, you know, put together a case that I made a case and put together a case that they thought this is somebody we want at the event. I think a lot of those things worked in my favor, uh, but there was a bit of synchronicity, I feel, and a bit of maybe the right work. How many TEDx talks have you done so far? I did. So it's a, it's a different, so there's not a straight cut and dry answer in the sense that um, it's, I, the number I did is different than the number that uh, you can watch right now. So I applied for six in my life total. I landed four. I did uh, three of the talks and one of the talks, they never decided, they decided to cancel the event. Like they didn't run the event ever. They haven't ever since. So it never got aired. Uh, so I've done four, but three is technically what I can send you a link and say, here's my three TEDx talks. And then of the other two, one of them, um, they same idea, they didn't run the event ultimately. And the other one was the only one, I think I was the only one I was ever rejected for. So pretty good track record. And then because of that, Dave, I retired from, them. I said, okay, I, the only thing I can do now is ruin my track record because honestly, um, I know people that have applied 30 times and not land at one. And so I like to have my track record pretty solid. Uh, the only exception to that is Every now and then when I do a TEDx challenge for our students, I'll apply for one then. So I technically, I guess I've applied for maybe two other ones uh, since then. Uh, but honestly, it's not about me when I do that. So I don't put as much, like I don't take as much time. I'm doing it. I actually do it in real time. I don't even plan in advance where I'm going to apply or nothing. I do it all in real time because I want people to see the process. But I can't view that as the whether or not I get rejected or not because I'm not taking the time to do it the way I would normally do it. So the only one... Uh, like I have, I applied for a TEDx event during our last TEDx challenge and I didn't take any extra time, but at the same time, they haven't announced the speaker. So maybe who knows, maybe I'll land that one. Uh, we'll, you know, I guess time will tell. I don't think they've, uh, updated anybody on the status of anybody's talks yet, 
but the answer, I mean, the short answer is I've done, I've delivered four, three are live. The success that you've seen from that, I believe, and, and correct me if I'm wrong, but I, I feel like that is what led you to form Blue Talks. So in a, I could say maybe in a roundabout way. Uh, so what happened with Blue Talks is I had students from my speaking program and my TEDx program, both asking me for something that I ultimately felt didn't really exist, or at least in the way I would create it, which was uh, the speaking program students were saying, I wish there was a, uh, where basically a situation where I could just show up and somebody else does all the other work. So in other words, you know, somebody else films it for me, they, uh, they host the venue, they have bring in the people that are gonna run the event, all that kind of stuff. I had students asking for that. And then I had students that had come to me and said, I want to land a TEDx talk. Some of them were saying, either now I've done the TEDx talk and I want to go to the next step, or uh, some of them realized that, and I told them going in, but realized that their talk was maybe a little more spiritual than a TEDx talk would normally be. And so both of those, um, both of those groups were asking me, they said, I wish there was like a, a, a TEDx style stage for, but spiritual, people can talk about spiritual as well. So talk about spiritual topics like, uh, synchronicity or holistic healing or energy or neurolinguistic programming. Um, and at the same time, also still speak about business or life stories and stuff like that. And so it was really a, a combination of those students that asked me for that, that ultimately popped the idea in my head to do Blue Talks. And so interestingly, Blue is B-L-U and the U stands for universe, which is really spirit, the spiritual side. So I often tell people that really the spiritual side was the catalyst, but at the end of the day, I'm very business practical. I love life stories. So I wanted it to be all of those things. And so we ultimately, I sat together with a person from one of my mastermind groups and we just kind of brainstormed about it. He said, well, what are you wanting to do? And, and, you know, how, what, what, what kind of, um, do you visualize it as a brand? And I said, yeah, and I think it, it should be blue. I, I mean, I really like the color blue and all this kind of stuff. And then, uh, interestingly, as I was trying to think of a name, I was like, maybe I should just name it blue. You know, it's just like it kind of that just, hey, wait a minute. Why don't I name it the color I like, considering it's a name that does work with it? Like, I mean, I guess any color would probably work like yellow talks, green talks, what have you. But blue just fit. And not only that, blue is a three. You can have a three or four letters so you can make an acronym out of it. And then also um, blue is one of those words where you can take away a letter and it still says blue. So it just, it felt like the right word if I was going to use a word that was a color and I wanted the color background and the logo to be blue. So, I mean, I'm taking you further down the rabbit hole than we probably have to, but that's, that's kind of how it started coming to, to life. But it was really because I had a need because people were telling me, and I just had a conversation with somebody, Dave, just earlier today. And she said, it's kind of cool how you did what most people don't do. And I say this, not as a, not as an ego perspective, just like, uh, you know, she pointed out that, uh, it's probably the better way to do it. And I think I just happy accident it into it. I lucked into it, but I was creating something that people were telling me already they want. And, and I haven't always done, like I've done lots of stuff where I created it trying to hope they would want it. And I think, but most business owners, I think that's what we do as entrepreneurs. We go, I really want to do this, or I really think the world needs this. I'm going to go out and find the customers. But imagine if more often than not, you could say, I'm going to go find out what customers needs, and then I'm going to create. Or if you could go to customers and say, I'm thinking of creating this, who would do it if I'm, who would jump in if I create this? And I just think that's uh, maybe a more seamless way to do it. So with Blue Talks, we did actually do a bit of that. We actually, what I did was I had, a, I had this uh, speaking program group. And they were the ones asking me for this. So I said, I'm going to put, get them to put their money where their mouth is. So what I did was I put a post and said, we're thinking of doing live talks. And here's what we're going to do. You guys have been asking for this. Who's interested? And our first live Blue Talks event, we planned to have 12 spots. And those 12 spots were gone in about two hours. And I was like, okay, so there's something here. And then I recognized that about 50% of the people were traveling to that talk. What if I just put a talk in the area where they're coming from? Because they were all come from the same place. And then all of a sudden that talk filled and, and most of those switched back to that one. So then I freed up spots at the other one. And so by the time that was done, we had two events filled in about six hours. 
And then we added the third one, which was at Harvard. So we knew that was going to, that one was going to fill quickly. It filmed, it filled for sure in less than 24 after I had already filled two other ones. And so we had three live events with about 12 speakers each filled in a total, if you could combine all the time, less than 48 hours. So again, it was one of those things where people were telling me they wanted it. And then I, before even putting it out, I tested it and said, hey, do you really want this? Uh, will you, will you lock yourself in for this? And then uh, by the time we created it, we already knew there was interest. And again, I would love to tell you that I do everything that way. I don't, it was, I think it was a happy accident, but there was a little, a little bit of uh, saying they keep asking me for it. They clearly want it, but now I got to test it. And it makes me think of um, this guy named uh, John Lee Dumas, who hosts a show called Entrepreneurs on Fire. Uh, I think it might be Entrepreneur on Fire. He's changed it between the two. And I never can remember which is the current one. Uh, but it's one of the most popular podcasts out there. And John told me, or in an interview, he said uh, what he did uh, was he created this thing uh, called Podcasters Paradise. And how he created it is he had run the podcast for about a year, had a lot of listeners. Like he was approaching a million unique listeners in a month, which is very rare for a non-celebrity podcast. So what he did was he sat on his show and he sent it to his email newsletter and said, I'm thinking of creating a community for podcasters to teach them because he re recognized a lot of the people listening were podcasters and were reaching out and asking questions about how he did stuff. And so he asked who'd be interested in this community before he ever launched it. And today that community podcasters paradise, I think is about 3000 people deep. And, and these are people that are investing quite a bit to join. And, you know, my point is again, he looked at it and said, why don't I see who's interested before I create it? So he said, Hey, I'm thinking of creating this who would come in as a founder knowing that we're going to be building it as we go and it's not going to be perfect when we start and a bunch of people raised their hands so he said okay i have customers anyway that was a long tangent to say uh with blue talks we did that and with uh even with the tedx program we did that people raised their hands and said to me i need to know what they were they weren't saying actually i need this they were reaching out to me asking me a million questions about it so i was getting all kinds of questions about how do you speak on stages how do you get paid and all that And eventually i'm like Dave, I need to stop answering this question every hour and make, put it together a program that answers it for them. And so that was them telling me they wanted something I felt, customers. Same happened with the TEDx. But then those two groups together were telling me they wanted something different that I didn't have. And that's when I went out and tested Blue Talks. The other two things, I had enough of them asking. I just said, I'm going to try it and see if I get enough people in this. Blue Talks was still different because I literally went to them and said, would you sign up for this if I launch it? So there, that's really behind the scenes in the Blue Talks world. For those that are listening that have aspired to be a TEDx speaker or aspired to get paid to speak on stage, you are, as, as far as I know, the most highly recommended person to go to. Like in the circles that I've been going through, through the publishing of my book and, and speaking and because your program is legit like it sees results the people that go to you like how many how many uh students have you had that have actually like i i'm not sure if you have a percentage of how many have actually followed through and and accomplished landing a, a tedx talk yeah so I don't know the total number right now, but I will give you an actual answer. I just don't know that I'd have to go look at the total number, but I, I have a, a, a statistic that I can tell you that will kind of at least demonstrate the numbers. And at the same time, what I will also tell you is one of the things I tell people when it comes to something like that is I believe almost every person that joins us will land the TEDx talk. And if, if they follow what we're teaching, but the key thing is people, and I see this all the time, people build and lose momentum a lot. So in other words, we see somebody that comes in and they're super stoked. And then all of a sudden something else gets in the way, like, oh, I, like for example, if it could be, and it's not in the way in a bad way, but it's just like, oh crap, uh, I get to finish my book. And then, so then the TEDx goes to the side and then they jump back in. And so what's interesting, and I'm gonna answer the question, but what's interesting is I see a lot of people that will come in with us and get really excited and then they disappear. And by the way, I even follow up and say, hey, how's it coming along? Anything I can do to help? And they just kind of disappear. And then six months later, they jump back in and then they land their TEDx talk. So it's, it, I want to bring that up because it's not every person that joins us and then right away, they, they go all in until they land it. Some people go in and out 
but they still end up landing it later. So it's kind of cool to see that. In fact, we had a student and I just shared on a call we had last night for Blue Talks. We had a student, I can't even say her name yet because she it's she's willing to say it. She said, you can share it, but she's not on the website yet. And I don't want to jinx her. Like I don't like doing that until TEDx has it on a website. But anyway, one of our students reached out to me. She joined with us two years ago and she followed the system just recently. She revisited the system and now she landed one. But um, to answer the question more directly, 2019 was the first full year we did it. So again, it's only not even quite four years old. 2000 and, uh, sorry, uh, 2019 was our first full year. And in 2019, we had a student every three weeks land their TEDx talk. And on top of that, we had, I think it was eight people that year who had never landed one before who ended up landing two. So they were multiple time TEDx speakers. And I'm not including that in the every three weeks because I figure once they land at one, they're already in that kind of loop. But maybe bigger than that as well, Dave, is we help people with other talks. So we help people land um, a talk at a, an event called New Media Summit. Uh, one of our students has 10 million views of her goal cast almost right now. And so when we looked at all branded talks, like anything you would consider a branded talk, we had a student every single week that year land one. So over 52 people landed it, not including the people that landed multiple TEDx. Where it gets challenging is 2020 because of COVID, I didn't open the doors to the program. And I had people asking me to open it, but we didn't because I felt live talks aren't back around fully yet. So I don't feel it's right to open it. And then, so as you know, we just opened it again in 2021. That wasn't planned either. What we did is uh, we did a launch for the member site we have and people in the member site were saying, ask me all these questions about TEDx over and over. When are you opening the doors to that thing? And so finally we opened the doors and let a new group go through. And that just happened, as you know. And we've had uh, three people that have already made it to the finals of TEDx events in the last few weeks. But again, to answer the question, I'd have to look at the numbers. I feel like we're about a hundred people right now. Uh, I feel like, but we've only opened twice. We've only opened the doors twice total. Uh, so I'm pretty ecstatic about the numbers. And, um, and it's just, I, I'd have to go back and look and see exactly which people. But again, as far as the two-time TEDx, which as soon as you're two times, you can say I'm a multiple time. I think we have about 10 people. And we, again, we opened, only opened twice. So I'm going to say maybe around 10% of the people that have landed them have already landed a second one. One of the other things that I've been really proud of is we've had students that uh, Kelly Florida, who I think you might know, uh, she does our book launches for us. Uh, Kelly went from never applying to landing both that she applied for. So again, I have people that say they applied 30 times and never landed it. Uh, another person is Tasia Valenza, who's an Emmy-winning voiceover artist. She wanted to only do it in LA, which makes it harder. When somebody says, I, I only want to do it in this one place, that means I got to try to help you get uh, in for one event. It's a little tougher. Uh, but Tasia landed the only one she ever applied for. And I think hers now has about 300,000 views. So it's, it's doing really well also. So I know that was a roundabout answer, but it's only because I don't have the numbers in front of me. Uh, but the number I've known because I was so proud of it was that one every three weeks, uh, what the first full year we opened the doors. And we've had people ever since then that came in the program that have landed them throughout. Like I can think off the top of my head, at least 15 other people that have landed them after, like, like six months, eight months, 10 months after they went through the program, but they were still using what they learned in the program. Yeah. So yeah, I'm, I'm happy with those, but I... I think I would love to answer that question for you in 10 years time after opening it 10 years, because I feel like uh, as long as everything stays equal, I feel like we could be saying a thousand, then, you know, but either way, a hundred, hundred people uh, with TEDx. I mean, that can, you know, if you, if you use it properly, the TEDx can change everything. So I'm still super stoked about that. No, I, I've learned so much uh, through your program and it, it's like, I'm not sure. It could have been somebody else, but it sounded like you were speaking exactly about me <laughs> with because I had to like pull back from the program to finish my book, get it all the way through. And now I'm coming up on the finish line. I should have copies for sale on my website um, the end of February. So well, I will, I will comment to that. I, I wasn't uh, directly commenting on yourself, Dave, but that I see that some version of that often. And, and again, I, and I don't know judgment on it either. Like, I think that's the thing we have to get away from uh, in, in the world we're in now is judging uh, the approach somebody takes. Like, for instance, it's the same thing with a podcast. Like I used to struggle with the idea of, well, I put the podcast that I want them to listen now, but we're not in that world anymore. People decide when they're going to listen. So I need to get away from what I want and recognize that if somebody listens to my interview with so-and-so three years from now, 
and they get impacted, it doesn't matter that they didn't do it three years ago. It didn't matter that they didn't do it when I want them to. So the same with the TEDx. It's hard because, of course, as, as the person running a program, you want those results of it's all these people. It's everybody that came in. But it's, you have to also let, let that go and say, not everybody's ready yet. They come in ready, but then something else might get in the way or, or they apply uh, two times and, you know, and, and that's not abnormal. Uh, like I said, we have people that get it the first time, but some people apply three or four times. It's very rare we've seen them have to go to five times, but they might apply two times and get discouraged and then go, oh, I'm going to focus on something else right now and then circle back to it. And, you know, just to be fully clear around it as well, when you're talking about something like landing a TEDx, you got to factor in a lot of variables. Like, for instance, um, it could be an event where only alumni are allowed to present up as a university and you didn't know that you applied. Well, it's not really like you got rejected because of your talk. Um, the other thing is it could be an event where somebody put it together and they already know the 10 speakers they want to book, but they still have to put it out there and get people to apply. It's like, you know, who you know when you get the job. And so I also work with people on the, the mindset side to realize that more, more often than not, it has nothing to do with you. Like you, you, you might say, this is the only talk I want to deliver and it has nothing to do with their theme. And they have 10 talks built around that theme. We had uh, one of the students I mentioned that got to the finals. Uh, two of them are still waiting, but she uh, was told that her talk was too close to somebody else that they already booked for it. So they brought her, she went through two rounds. She went through the audition, everything. And they said, we love it. We'd love to make it fit in, but we're down to the wire when we can select people and we don't have time for you to present a new topic. And yours is too similar to another person's. I think it was around resilience, which is obviously a very common theme. But I just, you know, again, just to put it out there that, yeah, I mean, when you're ready, uh, I have all confidence in the world that you'll be on that red dot stage. But what I'm getting at is that it's important, you know, because sometimes people love to say, oh, yeah, every person we bring in lands it. Well, it always comes back to if the timing's right, if they're ready, if they follow all the stuff. I feel confident that almost everybody that follows the stuff and the timing's right and they, they go until they get it. Almost every one of those will have a TEDx talk, but I can't control, obviously, if, if somebody's, you know, cools off and heats up again. Well, and that's what I really love about your program is that it's very low pressure. And it is like, I, I mean, you made it very clear from the beginning that it's something that if, um, you know, because it is so common for people to be, you know, gung-ho right in the beginning and then see that, you know, this is going to take some effort and I really don't have the time right now, but coming back around, like when, once I've got all of my book stuff nailed down and it's just a waiting game at that point, I'm able to get dive right back into your program. You update it. I mean, all the stuff that's relevant is there and I can apply everything. And it's, I, I just think it's an amazing program to be able to do that. Cause sometimes, you know, you, you join like a, a mastermind and it's for this period of time. And after that time frame is gone, well, you got to get into another mastermind. But the way you have your program set up is that once you join, it's, it's my program. This is, I'm, I'm going to follow this stuff. And I, I just think it's a, a great, it, it's like a business model that makes you feel like, you know, this is a, a buddy or a member of the family helping me through something, you know, helping me to accomplish something. And, and that's the way you've made me feel. And I, and, and so I can't speak highly enough of your program, even though I haven't gone all the way through the steps. Like I, I, I can read it and go, oh, yeah, I mean, that makes sense. It, it's very clear and it's step by step. It's awesome. It's an incredible program. Well, I mean, thank you so much. And I'll, I'll make it clear that I didn't pay Dave to say that. So thank you, Dave. And, you know, I, I, I have one other thing on that. And I'm, I, when I'm saying some of these things, I'm also trying to hopefully leave some nuggets for people that are entrepreneurs. Like I said, the idea of uh, maybe it can't hurt sometimes to test it before you spend all the time and money building something. Well, another maybe takeaway or nugget is to look at what you've done in the past, meaning what you've um, 
involved yourself in, like maybe it's signing up for a product, whatever that is, like buying a product at a store. Let's say you go retail. In customer service, when I was doing customer service talks, I always said, be your own customer. Call your own company and see the experience you get. Walk through a, a big box store at Staples, and whenever you don't get good service, say, what did I like about that to make sure you don't do it to somebody else? So I think these are all lessons for us. And so what I did when it comes to these programs that we have is, and this goes to what you're talking about, I think, is I looked at the programs I signed up for and said, what didn't I like? So for example, I would sign up for some programs and it was all self-study only. And I like self-study, but sometimes you need the extra motivator, but it was all self-study, meaning you never got to talk to anybody. You didn't get to know who the person, run you knew that was running it, but you never got to talk to them. So it was completely, you're on your own, good luck, you signed up, have a good life. Then I went to other ones where it was like you said, mastermind, but it was all live. And if you missed the live, you either didn't get the recording or you might not watch the replay. And so I didn't like the fact that you had to choose one or the other. And so first of all, one of the things we did is we said, let's take everybody through. So for example, this last round, we did um, some group coaching in between the trainings and you can still jump in and, and go through that yourself as well and we'll do another round of that in the new year and so and then we also try to do monthly uh, live q a's you know we'll be kicking them back off in january uh, but my point is is that we try to have the components where you're on live with us and i say us at me or somebody on my team but it's mostly me uh, so you're on live and you get that live attention you can ask questions as you know and i try not to promote this and i got to stop saying it uh but I, even if somebody reaches out to me and says i'm working on my outline for my tedx can you help me I'm, i i i rarely ever say no so you you kind of get some if you need that extra guidance i want to help you i don't want to see you flounder and not have the answers to your questions and then you get self-study so that if you're super busy and can't get to stuff live you still have access to everything on the replay but all of that is not maybe a credit to me as much as it is me saying, what did I dislike about programs I signed up for that I never end up using? And how can I make sure it has a little bit of everything? And then one other part of that is bonuses. So I layered in bonuses like, um, you know, being, being able to be interviewed and stuff like that. So that way, sometimes we see this, people that sign up, and I have one person, for instance, uh, Deanne is her name, and she signed up and she shared this publicly. So I know I can at least say her first name. And she signed up. And one of the things that we uh, used to do, and we, we do it a bit now, but we haven't been doing it as much because of COVID, but we'll be doing it again. But we would share, uh, when people come to me about a paid speaking engagement, we would share those if it was like, if they're looking for 20 speakers. And so we would share those inside the group. Well, I started doing that and Deanne started landing a few of those. And then, so when I had a couple opportunities that were in her backwoods, I actually said, look, I can't get there, but I want to re recommend Deanne. One of those was her biggest paid speaking engagement ever. So she shared inside a group where she brought me on that just on the, that bonus of her just applying for the stuff I was sharing, she paid for the program three times over. But the cool thing is this was without her doing anything else. So even if she was busy, like we just said, working on a book or what have you, and all she did was apply for those opportunities when they came out, she still seen three times the return because of the bonuses. So the third component of what I try to do there as well, Dave, is have bonuses that people see the benefit of even five years after they signed up, even if they've only ever invested once. So just to kind of give people behind the scenes that what I would say is it may be a takeaway for people that list are listening and they're maybe wanting to be an entrepreneur or they are an entrepreneur is look at the things that you have signed up for or bought or what have you and figure out what it is that you don't like about it or it's missing and build that into whatever you're doing. To that point, I just wanted to tie this in because uh, mostly what I talk about on the podcast is leadership, leadership development. And this goes directly to the point of a good leader or a leader gauges their success by the success of their followers. Without a doubt, I know that you are committed to the success of the people that, that sign on to your program. And it's, it's evident in how you, you deal with everybody, how you've dealt with me. It's just, uh, you embody leadership and that's, you, that's exactly what you're doing is you're leading people uh, through your program, leading them to their version of success. And I just wanna say thank you so much for what you're doing and, and to get in touch with you, thatspeakerguy.com, is that correct? Or .ca? Uh, well, so there's a couple of options there and, and I just want to, I don't want to ignore that. And I just want to thank you as well, Dave, I've been working on over the last few years, uh, 
you know, I love giving and trying to do what I can to pay it forward, but I've also been working on being a good receiver because that part was hard for me. I grew up in a small town. It was almost like, oh, you know, don't worry about me. And so it was like, you, you almost apologize when somebody's trying to give you the compliment. And so I just want to say thank you. I want to receive it properly. Uh, but thank you for, for saying that. It, it means the world to me, made my day. Um, and the answer to the question as far as uh, contacting me, there's two options. One, people can send me an email. Uh, it's, it's, you, you said it, that speaker guy at gmail.com. So it's really easy. Uh, if they want to go to that website, there is the website that speaker guy.com. So it's probably easy to remember both of those together, that speaker guy at gmail.com and that speaker guy.com. But with your permission, Dave, I'd love to give away a free gift as well. If that's cool. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. So this is just another way you can, you'll get in my network this way as well, but um, I just want to give it to you, even if you don't stick in, stick around on the network, at least grab this uh, for free, is the book we mentioned earlier, the book of why and how. I actually have the audio version and normally people charge more for the audio versions than the book itself. I haven't got the memo yet. So, and I say this, this I've never charged for the audio version of it, uh, but I'd love to give away the audio version. And so if you're a person that loves listening to audiobooks or likes listening to audiobooks, uh, this is my book that's with a publisher. So they probably don't even like me doing this, but uh, just go to the book of why audio.com. So the book of why audio.com and basically uh, sign up there and it immediately redirects you to the audiobook. So you can listen to the full audiobook for free as well. So just wanted to give a gift out as well. Thank you. Thank you very much. And I will have all of that in the show notes as well. So um, whatever platform people are listening on, they can go and, and check that out. And, and it'll all be on my website as well. You know, Dave, thank you so much. I want to add for those uh, from your network that are listening that we're going to have you on our show. It's, it's going to be airing, uh, I think it's the first of the new year, uh, but I wanted to put that out there as well. So they'll be able to, to catch you on our show too. And you delivered, uh, I mentioned John Lee Dumas earlier. I think he calls it uh, knowledge bombs. So you delivered knowledge bombs galore. So I just want to put that out there uh, that they can find their way over if they do uh, to our show that they should check out your interview as well. Awesome. And, and the name of your podcast is? Let's Do Influencing, which is a play in the words, let's do coffee. Uh, but it, of course, like yours, it's about leadership and influence. All right, let's do influencing. So I'll have that on there as well. So yeah, because we got to help each other out, right? Awesome. Well, and I, I love what you're doing. Uh, obviously, um, I, I told you this, I, I love your book. I love the what you're doing to share your message with the world. And so, you know, I want to put it out there too. just keep on doing what you're doing, because you are making an impact and you are making a difference. And I only see that rising. So keep up the good work. Thank you so much, Corey. Thank you for listening to this episode of From Embers to Excellence. Please like and subscribe to my YouTube channel. Follow me on your favorite podcast platform and visit hollenbachleadership.com for additional content. My goal is and always will be to add value to as many people as possible. So if I can be of any assistance to you or someone you know, please connect with me via email or on one of my social media accounts linked on the homepage of my website. Remember, our failures don't define us unless we let them. And the only true measure of a leader is the success of their team.